Hey friends, before we dive into the episode, I've got something for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals, if you're locuming or going to locum, navigating it through multiple agents and agencies can be stressful. Back and forth emails and timesheets aren't needed in this era. What if there was an app where you could see the shift, the total pay, the hours and request to book it there and then? Well there is. Locum's Nest connects healthcare professionals digitally to the NHS staff bank. The app connects already over 50,000 healthcare professionals to vacant work in over 50 NHS trusts and growing. Check it out yourself, that's Locum Nest. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In Podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we have with us another amazing guest. We have with us Dr. Elliot, who is award-winning <laughs> doctor, the co-founder and CEO of Innovus Medical, which is also most award-winning, venture-backed, and they're designing and manufacturing technology. But I like to think of it as, are you the Steve Jobs of surgery? <laughs> well, First of all, uh, thanks thanks for having me on the pod, guys. Really, really appreciate the invite. Um, uh, second of all, uh, I'm on my way because um, although I'm currently wearing a, a shirt because I've been interviewing, um, I have the most binary wardrobe of all time. It's not it's not black necks. It's just lots and lots of white t-shirts. Um, so uh, I'm certainly I'm certainly on my way uh, with, with the white right wardrobe. No, but, uh, def- definitely. Yeah, just a, just a few billion few billion dollars in revenue behind it. <laughs> no, of course. But um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Elliot. Um, you're doing incredible work so far, um, super busy. But what we like to inscribe in is we want to take it to the very beginning, kind of a young Elliot who kind of embarks on this journey, you know, going to medical school, kind of being a doctor. If you don't mind, take us to the very beginning, kind of bring us up to present day. Yeah, yeah, it'd be my pleasure, and and I think um, yeah, actually I'd like to just take a step back prior to prior to medical school because it will make a lot more sense um, if I give you that that bit of background before I start talking about um, where we are now. So um, I was a decent tennis player as a kid um, for a long period of time. Um, my plan was to go and be a tennis player. Um, oh wow! Whether or not that was professional or or as, or as a coach or whatever at a decent level. Um, but I was very lucky to um, be in a position where I could get coached by the surgeons and doctors at my at my tennis club um, into medical school because I didn't know anything about it. Um, there's no medics in my family. I'm not from a classic medics background. Went to a basic comprehensive school in South Wales. Um, so first of all, super lucky to be here. Um, and sport is the reason for that. Um, I think it's important to talk about the sporting background because of what a lot of what I'm going to talk about, um, we use sporting analogies and really it's what drove the creation of the business and what today drives many of the factors that we talk about that make us hopefully a successful business uh, mm. and what we focus around. So that's probably an important um, piece of background. But I went to medical school in Manchester. Um, I went to medical school with uh, with the view that I would go and uh, become a surgeon. Um, and whilst I was at medical school, I was looking at my future career path in surgery saying, okay, um, I'm going to want to train for this like I trained for tennis, like I have done for years and like I currently do mm. now. So that's a number of things. That's number one, being able to break down the, the art of the game, as it were, into, into various different drills. Uh, number two is an ability to train 
at all hours of the day if I so wish, because I want to become the best at my art and what I'm doing. And number three is to train with some data behind me that's really driving what is it that I'm supposed to be doing well, where can I, where can I make improvements and, and importantly, uh, allow myself to become as best as I possibly can. And when, when I was looking at that, I, I was thinking, hang on, we're, we're not training surgeons like that at all. Um, we're, we're training surgeons with this see one, do one, teach one approach, which, okay, I understand why we did that a few hundred years ago. But more importantly, mm. when I started looking at that, I thought, okay, but that is also all of that early learning curve is primarily still at the patient bedside. And, and why have we not shifted that early learning curve from the patient bedside into a simulated environment? And why are we not using a simulated environment to train like elite athletes? Because that's ultimately what surgeons are. All surgeons mm. are elite athletes. There's, uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no argument about that. Uh, they're the best of the best, and we should be allowing them to train like that. And so um, I just take a step back. I'm not your classic medic. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was a kid selling sweets in the playground. I had about four different businesses uh, growing up. I had all sorts <laughs> of uh, hustles going on on the school bus on the way to school, et cetera. Um, and so I looked at this and said, well, hang on. Um, there's clearly an opportunity to, to, to change the way in which we deliver um, surgical training, surgical education. And I think the best way to do that is by building a successful business um, mm. because building successful businesses are often the way to make significant change, not by asking mm. for, for handouts or whatever. So um, we, we looked at this and I, I'm very lucky to have a great co-founder. My co-founder is very similar to me in that he mm. was also a, a pretty decent sportsman, rugby and golf. He's annoyingly good at golf. Yeah, um, uh, he was a very, very good rugby player and he's our CTO um, and okay. fills in all my gaps. And we can touch on that probably later on in the pod and the importance of it. Mm. And he and I looked at this and said, why have we not shifted the learning curve into the simulated environment? And why are we not using simulation as a gold standard day one to say, before you touch a patient, this is the standard you should achieve as a surgeon. Mm. And we're going to keep using simulation throughout your career, like they do in the airline industry, throughout your career to make sure you're at the right benchmark of the standard. And we realized there were four issues. Cost. So pre-existing technologies, they already existed. Simulators have been around for 30 or 40 years, 120 grand, 150 grand for a simulator. It's a huge amount of money. That means they're difficult to access. They're sort of the old school IBM mainframe style computers where they're maybe sitting in one or two of the teaching hospitals. That's not a scalable distance learning model, which meets the modern day requirements of surgical trainees. And then really importantly, these things are using virtual reality. So software and motors telling you how haptics should feel. So how blood vessels should feel or soft, this soft tissue over that soft tissue. And, and, and honestly, that's not fit for purpose when it comes to surgical training. Um, and the final thing that we realized, um, none of these technologies were connected or integrated into the daily lives of surgeons. And so as a pair of 23 year olds, myself and Jordan decided that with no money, no contacts and, and no real knowledge about what we were doing, we, we were best placed to solve this. Uh, <laughs> bit. It probably was just the same as selling sweets in the playground uh, when we drilled down into it. So um, that's the that, that's the background. That's what that's what spurned us to, to get moving. And uh, I'd be happy to share how we uh, how we got going and, and where we've mm. got to today. And what year of medical school were you when you started to kind of think and identify this opportunity where you can come in and make a difference? So it's pretty early. So I went to med- I went to medical school on the following advice, which sounds funny today, uh, which was because I think all these surgeons and doctors that had very much very kindly coached me into medical school and, and, and helped me get there. They said, I think they felt, well, we don't want to be seen to have been pushing him into something he doesn't want to do. And they said, Go to medical school. If you don't like it, you can. You'll, you'll be the most employable person ever. You can go and do anything you like. 
just just as a disclaimer, I absolutely loved medical. Loved clinical practice, and I still I still do today. And um, so I'm, I'm not someone that's uh, gone down this route because I didn't enjoy it. Um, but I always went into medical school thinking, I know I'm wired slightly differently. Um, I think I've got some other skill sets that could add value. And I was always looking throughout the whole of medical school: can I can I combine these other skills that I think and I know I have with with medicine and healthcare to maybe make a bigger impact than I'll be able to. Um, so really from day one, I was thinking about it. By third year of medical school, I was researching how to build my portfolio and my career for surgery. And by the fourth year of medical school, I'd founded the business with my, my co-founder, Jordan, because um, I, I thought, well, worst case scenario, it's a pretty good line on the, uh, on the portfolio, even of if course. we can't change that we want to. <laughs> no, definitely. And I feel the new generation of medics that aren't, are entering medical school are similar. They've all got side hustles. They've already co-founded multiple companies. And he's just like, you know, they're co-founder first and a medical student second. And it's quite nice and refreshing to see that. The, the question I had was, as clinicians, we often get told you should be close to the problem. It should be problems you face on a daily basis before you kind of embark on it. Because you don't have that, that insight. Whereas you are a bunch of medical students, I imagine not much exposure to surgery or training per se, um, yet you come up. So what would you say to individuals that kind of, thinking about it to you all oh, i've got an amazing idea for this but i've never been into theaters i've never operated on anyone or not close to the problem yeah and i think well there's there's two things i want to unpack one of the first things you said there as well which is you see co-founder first clinician second and then multiple co-founders of x um one piece of advice if someone is a is that way inclined entrepreneurially innovation inclined focus on one of them um I will answer your question, by the way, but if we're going to give any advice and start with that, focus is absolutely key. Um, if you want to do something that has meaningful impact for the long term and you're really serious about it, and this is a real question anyone should be thinking about for themselves if they are driving innovation, how serious am I about this? Because if it's actually going to stick, I'm going to have to commit everything I've got to this because it is not easy. So. I will always caution those who are multiple co-founders. Um, but you see it a lot in medical students, and, and this is coming from someone that's lived this. I was doing, I was playing premiership tier one tennis for the university whilst doing medical school, whilst founding a business, um, whilst doing a number of other things for CV building and all those other things. And, and you think about that and go, well, actually, I've stripped all that right back now, and I'm, I'm the CEO of the business. That's what I do. Um, with the odd bit of exercise to keep myself healthy. Um, that level of focus is what you'll need. So that, that's the first one. I think coming back to the, the, the piece of advice around, I think I've got an idea, but I don't know if I'm that exposed to it. Well, well look, let's, let's, let's think about it like this. But by the time I was, I think, in my fourth year at medical school, I already had about 250 procedures in my e-log book. Because I was, I was, I was still very much like I'm going to become a surgeon. This thing over here, um, I, I was identifying as someone that wanted to become a surgeon, but had the opportunity to impact um, surgical training for, for the better. And so I was still very focused on how do I become a good surgeon? I need to gain as much experience as possible. Once you've been in theatre 250 times, you you, you know a lot. Um, like you understand how things work. You understand the dance that gets played in theater between the team, which is really important. And by then you're starting to understand a lot of procedures. So I think number one is go and go and search for opportunity. If, the, if you really committed to this, 
So you've got something you want to solve and you think, I think this could be the thing, but I need more experience. Go and commit to it. Spend the extra hours. Spend the extra hours with the on-call team going into theatre. Spend the weekends going into theatre. We, I'm more than happy to talk about my core values and the core values we have at the business, but one of them is ethic, work ethic. You've got to put the hours in. Um, I think the next thing then is not rushing into things. So um, we founded the business when I was in fourth year. Um, completed medical school. I completed foundation training, all whilst building the business on the side. Um, not because I was hedging, but because I wanted the extra experience. And when I came out of full-time training, I locumed for another five years or so because I wanted the extra experience. So um, I have what, a decade of clinical experience now, um, which means that when we are talking about things at a clinical level, um, I have enough, I have enough um, credibility to talk about them at a high level. And I think that's, uh, that also comes back to work ethic, which is that was not easy. Um, so... Yeah, to answer your question, you're an early stage medical student. You think you've got an idea that could solve a big problem, but you're not quite sure you've got enough experience. To go and get more experience of the problem. You'll never get a better opportunity as a medical student to spend hours <laughs> embedding yeah. yourself into something. Just You've just got so much time um, to, to, to experience the things you need to experience. When you founded Innovus, right? How receptive was your environment? Because right now, health tech, med tech, clinical entrepreneurship, there's a big buzz around it, lots of support behind it. When you were in medical school, founding this idea, what was support like? What were people saying about you? Um, how did you feel when you were like, I'm in med school, but I'm also building a business? Yeah, so I'll unpack that. There's a few things there. So, um, so founded the business in 2012. I'm aging myself now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so, businesses was 10 years old in January this year, which is a real milestone for us. But founded Amazing. the business in 2012. Thank you. Um, there's a difference between what people were saying to me and what people were saying about me. I haven't got a clue. I've got a clue what people were saying about me. Um, but here's what people were saying to me um, as a as an excitable fourth year, I just come out of my third year placements, an excitable fourth year medical student. I, and, and just take this a step back um, so that people have got context here. Um, the first products we have are laparoscopic simulators and we have six in our portfolio, but there's a whole continuum and it comes back to the, and this is why I laid the groundworks with the, the sporting analogies, comes back to when we're training for anything, there's not one size that fits all. So we have six laparoscopic simulators in our portfolio from very basic analog, um, low cost take home box trainers, which allow you to learn day one skills right up to high fidelity platforms with a digital surgery platform over the top. We started at the bottom of that continuum because we had 200 quid to start the business with. So um, our first ever prototype was made with an open flame heat gun, heating up the edges of a piece of plastic and bending that over the side of a fridge into a box and sticking webcams inside it to make a, a, a box trainer. But I, I excitedly um, took this to my, my professor, who's a professor of vascular surgeon, um, but, uh, professor of vascular surgery rather, um, but one of the medical education leads. And I took this um, slightly wonky prototype to him and said, this is the concept that we've come up with in our garage. We, we think this could change the, the face of surgical training and education for the future. Explained the, the larger plan. Uh, and he turned around and said, if, when I was a surgical trainer, I would have bought these immediately. I think it's a great idea. Um, how, how can we help? Um, the, we've got some budget here at the hospital. We probably need some lap trainers. Should we buy some off you? And 
we got that same same reception from a professor of um, an ENT professor in um, this is in Manchester. So one was in South Manchester, one was in Wigan. A pair of them gave exactly the same reception to a, some some just enthusiastic medical students. Um, what were my friends saying was a slightly different thing, and they were also saying this to me, and it was a it became a running joke um, for the remainder of medical school that what is this guy up to? Um, we, often my co-founder, we turn up and we like assembling products on our kitchen table in our shared university house. Um, that that professor of ENT surgery was at Wigan Hospital, uh, and that first ever hospital NHS-based order came. Uh, while I was sitting my finals, we were we, I was literally sitting my final exam of finals while my co-founder was fitting all these simulators, and it was it was aptly described as the Wigan order, um, which has still gone down in history in the business as something that I got heavily ribbed for for for, for quite some time from my uh, my good friends. But but ultimately, to answer your question. Um, we received nothing but positivity, but I think that's because we only allowed to be ourselves to receive positivity. We were so positive about the idea and so unwavering about the fact that this is what some, someone needs to do this. Who is best placed to do it? A big corporate or a big manufacturing firm that doesn't understand the problem and is not going to come with the right values to this to actually solve the problem. Now, if I may, I'll just drill down into that. Those problems we said. Existing technology, too expensive, too difficult to access. It's not functional enough. So the haptics are, are just not fit for purpose and it's not connected. We made those our core values as a business from day one. We said, we're going to make technology that's more affordable, more accessible, more functional and connected. And we live those values, the affordability piece being the big one. We have a technology that's more, more connected, more functional than our competitors, and it's one fifth of the price. And we've religiously stuck to the idea of making these things more affordable so we can shift the needle, so we can put these in the hands of th hundreds of thousands of surgeons across the globe. And um, I think that was the thing that kept us going and made us so positive that everyone else had to be positive around us saying, guys, here are our values. This is the mission that we're on. We want to become the world's partner for surgical training. These are all the problems we're solving. How great is this? And uh, I think that positivity just carried on snowballing. Yeah. Oh. To just add on to that, so you've talked about focus, about positivity, and I can almost see the fourth year, Elliot, and there's a lot of conviction behind the idea, the problem you want to solve. How important is it for people who are starting out on this idea to, to market journey to have conviction in what they believe in? Because sometimes you do it for a month, you do it for two, the going gets tough and you're like, screw it. How important is it to really give it a good shot, believe in it and to take it the full mile? It's probably the single most important thing uh, that we just we just we've just built a commercial team across the USA, um, and we just had this whole commercial team here um, in the UK at our headquarters. I'm going through their training, and that's weeks and weeks of high volume training. And, and the single most important takeaway point that I leave them all with, that I start with, is you just have to keep turning up. Um, there is a uh, there is a different way in which we describe it in an investment. It's probably not appropriate for the pod, so I won't, I won't say that. But, but the ultimate, the ultimate crux of the matter is just keep turning up relentlessly, day after day, persistence. However you want to describe it, that is the single most important ingredient to success because it also plays to that ethic, that work ethic, and that hard work piece. They go hand in hand with one another. But the resilience to keep putting that hard work in, that hard graft, is so important. We, I love the uh, speaking about this recently. The the um, all those various images you see of the guy with the pickaxe against the wall and the diamond is like one one more strike away and he's given up. 
that is life. That is that is specifically business. Um, so yeah, the one piece of advice I'd give anyone is yeah, have your conviction. When people challenge you, don't uh, you've got to make sure that you take a balanced approach to the challenge. Um, I think that your previous question, actually, let me come back to that. Your previous question of how will we receive? This is 2012. Clinical Entrepreneur Programme didn't exist. The, the idea of innovation in the NHS and, uh, and people being having side hustles of I'm the med, med tech entrepreneur or whatever it may well be didn't really exist. Um, I think that maybe that maybe helped us a little bit because we were actually still a bit of a, a bit of a rarity. And so everyone thought, well, this is novel. How cool is that? Now maybe it's a little bit more flooded. And so there's probably a little bit more speculative um, narrative around it for many people. So I think that if you're receiving a speculative response or a negative response, you need to make sure that you're balanced with how you take that feedback, but don't let it deter you if you are absolutely convinced that this is something that's going to have a big impact on patient care. And the way I describe this is if you think that what you're working on can have a bigger impact than you working as a physician and a, and a clinician, because we need great, we need great clinicians. We can't have everyone just leave healthcare. Um, it's just, we can't do that. Um, so if, if you're a great physician who enjoys it um, and can deliver great patient care and you think that's going to have a bigger impact on patients' well-being, then do that. Don't do the med tech stuff. But if you think that your innovation um, or your technology could have a bigger impact than you could have day to day, then yeah, keep going after it, but do it in that balanced approach. Absolutely. No. Were, there, were there any moments or can you give us any examples when you thought things got really tough and uh, it was just about, you know what, turning up on that day and looking back, you're like, thank God I turned up on that day. Any any moments, or any examples you can give? I mean, there's there's, there's a lot. Um, some of them are, again, not, probably not appropriate for, for the um there's just there's just so many um thinking of a specific example where we turned up and, and this is the other thing is um there's probably not one like stand out i turned up on that day and this massive thing happened um because it's just it's just it's just tiny tiny gains as marginal gains every day it, it is it really is that grind. I will. I will explain one. No, I've got one story for you, um, which, which, which is, which is probably of interest. So, um, 2018. So we've been building the business for six years, and we're in the process of raising some venture capital at the time. And I was the only salesperson in the business. I was doing all the sales, all the commercial activity, trying to drive top line growth, trying to put ourselves into a position where we were investment ready. We're a profitable business and growing, so that's fine. Um, and my co-founder brought this opportunity to me, which is a piece of funding called SBRI funding, Small Business Research Initiative. It's a brilliant piece of funding. Um, and at the time, I just said, look, that's that's my job to do those. That, that's where my skill set is. But... I need to focus on actual making sales, making sure this business continues to grow and and raising us some capital. Um, and he said, well, look, it's it's really it's really important that we do this. It's really focused on simulation. We stand a good chance. I've, I've got on good authority that we'd be a good fit for this. Um, so I said, okay, um, why don't you start it, have a crack, and then I'll come, I'll come back through and, and, and sort it out. So long story short, the day before the deadline, I get around to having a look at the application. Um, and uh, he's got it going for me, but he'd left me uh, a considerable amount of it to do on, on purpose. So I spent a whole day just 
earphones in, plowing on with this uh, application. And um, because now here's a piece of advice for anyone that's doing an application. And this is something I would never normally do, but I did it on this day. Always copy the questions out and do it in Word and then copy them back into the platform. I've never done, I've never not done that in my life. Never done it before, never done it since. But because I, I picked up a project halfway through, I was just merrily typing away in, in, in the boxes. Thought I'd submitted it at 4 p.m. Um, hit submit and realized the whole thing got deleted. Spent a whole day. Yeah. So here's you just keep turning up. I sat there with my heads in my hands thinking I've got a million, I've got a million other things to do. Like I've, I've got to get out on the road. I've got to get product in front of people. Um, I've got to speak to investors, create the deck. So I thought, well, I can either just say, well, I've wasted a day and that's done, or I can double down here. So I went for a run had some dinner and I redid the entire application. And I, I, I was really happy with the application, by the way. I felt, I almost felt, I felt like I just finished off the Sistine Chapel, like just made like the final brush stroke and then, and then the whole building got like knocked down. So I strapped back in and, and bear in mind that the application deadline was midday the next day. And I was, I was committed to meetings from like seven o'clock in the morning. So there's no way I could do this in the morning. So I strapped in, carried on turning up. Um, Bear in mind, I wanted to give up. I did not want to do this. Um, I banned out the whole application, submitted it at four o'clock in the morning. Um, we successfully made it through the first round. Then we ended up with a total total funding quantum of 1.1 million pounds. And it allowed us to develop our high fidelity platform, which is basically our hero product and is the thing that we're building the business off globally today. So um, the, I don't think SBRI know that that's what happened. Um, uh, I've never actually shared it with them, but if they're listening to the podcast, uh, then, then um, yeah, that, that's that's how that one went down. Um, but yeah, if you're going to maybe give you a story of just keep turning up, there's there's one of them, uh, one of many. Oh, incredible. That, that is incredible. And funnily enough, it seems a lot of companies have had this. We recently had a founder from Australia and the last pitch of the day, he just came from theatres, had blood all over his scrubs, didn't have time to go in and change, pitched. And in that craziness ended up kind of getting the term sheet and whatnot it's always these, these these moments that kind of lead to these crazy outcomes i'm gonna play bad cop for a bit mm. it's all well and good turning up every day you're you're in the game 10 years now at what point do you think to yourself this isn't going to work like opportunity cost is another thing right you don't want to hack away for years on end especially while foundation training we know it's tough at what stage do you think do you know what? This doesn't have any legs. It's not worth doing it. What What are the signals? What are the signs for you to keep going? Hmm. It's an interesting question. It's, it's actually it's actually quite nuanced for, for a number of reasons. Um, a lot of people have this that they'll advocate this fail this fail quickly idea, which comes from Silicon Valley and, te and tech, not not med tech. It comes from tech. Fail quickly. Let's see if it works, get minimally viable products out there, fail fast. It, it's, it's really hard to fail fast in, in healthcare um, because and a lot of companies are now getting MVPs out and, and, and trying to fail quicker than we traditionally used to. So definitely the cycle of failure is, is, is quicker, but we have a responsibility to patients and users to make sure we've got to a certain degree of competency before we put something in front of someone. So it's, it is difficult to fail fast. Um, but I think that 
answering your question there, yeah, can I? Can, is it appropriate for me to fail fast? If it is, it's always appropriate to fail fast or get a, what I like. I prefer the answer of a quick no. Uh, when it comes to raising capital, I, I just implore anyone I speak to, just please give me a quick no. It's not going to hurt my feelings. Um, it just a quick no is brilliant. Um, a slow no is just the, the kiss of death. So if you can fail fast where it's appropriate, I think that's I think that is important, and that's um, that's certainly one way of answering your question, which is how do you know when to give up? Well, if you fail, then it hasn't worked, and what? And but you have to also be very focused with what your metrics of failure are, which we'll come on to in a moment. Then I think um, I think that's one thing. And then when we're thinking about metrics of failure or success, I think that's where your yardstick should be. I think you should re be incredibly focused with what what actually is a success, because a success is not success is not. I'm a billion dollar business. I've raised all this money. I'm now valued at that. No, that's that. Everyone thinks that's success, but that's not the case. You can be very successful building a very profitable smaller business. Um, it's a great book for anyone listening called Small Giants by uh, Bo Burlingham. It's a brilliant read, which talks about this concept of building businesses that are brilliant, smaller businesses that people may not have ever heard of. So your, your success metrics, you, you, you need to be really focused on them. And I think they, they need to be achievable. So if you're then hitting these gates of success metrics, so for us, it was, will someone, will someone buy this product online? That was success number one. That gave us the confidence to go and take that to our professors and our surgeons that were, that were training us and said, would you buy this for the hospital? Because we think a hub and spoke training model where you have the same simulators in the hospital setting as at home would be a big game changer for the way in which we train back to sporting analogies. Turns out, yes, the hospitals would do that. Um, then it's onto the med device companies. Would you do it? Yes. Now are you going to do it at a big enough scale? Yes. And we gave ourselves a lot of time to work out whether or not we were successful or, or, um, or, or not, because again, we looked at what would success be in terms of a metric for us only selling enough product for this to be a small lifestyle business where we worked on it part-time for us, isn't something that's worth me, me coming out of a career, which I love. Um, and it comes back to the impact. Uh, my biggest one for me was, am I having enough impact doing this uh, or am I having more impact doing this than I am looking after patients? Um, so yeah, that's how we measure it. No. And I think amazing. The, the, the beauty of setting out your core values and your ethos early on, it guides all future decisions. And you don't kind of get that shiny object syndrome where in the middle of after four or five years of building, you want to do this, you want to do that. And I think for you, the impact is a good way to kind of use it as, as a yardstick. Am I having an impact? Do I still do what I love doing? I want to kind of go back to the story. So fourth year medical school, medical student, you build this in, in, your, in your bedroom, uh, university accommodation, you speak to your professors, you get good feedback, they get a good response. You get this, this order from Wigan. Tell us a bit about the transition from doing it while a medical student with all the time in the world to then suddenly having to turn up for work at nine o'clock in the morning with real responsibilities. How do you grow a business while doing foundation training? And we know how difficult it is, let alone having to, to graft and grow a business. I don't know what rotations you are on having a lie until 9am, but um, <laughs> uh, as someone that was surgically minded, I certainly was having to be in the hospital a little bit earlier than that. So look, this is how I'm wired. Um, founded the business in, in, in while well, I was at Manchester in the Northwest. Um, our first factory was my co-founder, Sir John's um, granny's garage. Um, that was where our first factory was, in the garage in St. Helens, which is where the headquarters of our business is today still. Um, 
but this is how I'm wired. Um, I decided to do my foundation training in one of the busiest hospitals in the country because I wanted the challenge to make sure that um, whatever whatever job, whether or not it's um, clinical or or, uh, or commercial, would probably be a cakewalk. So I decided to pick the, the three busiest rotations at the John Radcliffe in Oxford and chuck myself into that whilst also building a business which was three hours away. So um, the answer of how do you do that when you're then having to get up and be be on the ward round for 7 a.m. Um, having left the hospital at 2 a.m. Um, this is 2000. This is 2013, but well, it's a little while ago now. Um, that is just relentlessly turning up. It's there's just no, there's, there's no there is no other formula than you just have to be incredibly resilient. Um, you have to just keep getting out of bed and get going after it, and and, there, and therefore you have to have a few things. One, you have to believe in the thing that you're doing is actually going to make a difference because. It's a, it's a heck of a time drain and it takes a lot of energy. Number two, you have to enjoy it because there's no point in doing anything unless you're enjoying it as well. Um, and, and number three, as I say, it just comes back to that that resilience to just keep going. And, and those are my those are my only secrets. Unfortunately, there's no other, there's no like funky formula um, for well, if you structure your day like this and you get up and start working at five a.m. before nine, and you, yeah. there's no there's no formula. Because, um, it's just those three things really. No. I think the the theme is quickly turning into just turning up every day, consistent, and it's the marginal gains that lead to the big wins. Mm. So you get through foundation training, you're in Oxford, busy rotations, you're still growing the business. Um, at this time, was your co-founder working full-time on the business or was he kind of doing it as a side gig into, because he's an engineer, I believe, right? Yeah, he's at an engineer, time. yeah. Yeah, one of, yeah. very rarely do you find this, that he started out as a hardware engineer, um, okay. and, uh, and, and it's now, uh, it is sort of by, he's a bilateral engineer. So he's also now a software engineer, um, oh, okay. uh, because we have a effectively an internet of things model. So we, we have a factory, um, we churn out a load of hardware and we have a low, a whole digital surgery platform that sits on top of it. So yeah, he, he has to sit between both, which is uh, very useful that he has those skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, he, for a, for a period he was working, he'd graduated a little bit earlier. Um, and he was working in the, in the pharmaceutical industry because he wanted okay. to get some exposure to big med tech, pharma biotech businesses in terms yeah. of, well, what are the positives we can pull out of those guys and pull those into our future growth. So, um, yeah, he, he came, he came out of that a little bit earlier. So probably while I was still in F2, um, right. and was, was sort of grinding away in the garage, uh, making, making boxes and shipping them all over the place. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, but, um, yeah, it was, it was it, f- for the early days, we were both running, running it as a side hustle as we got enough data points to say, okay, okay this is working. If we've achieved this with this amount of time input and this amount of bandwidth and capital, imagine what we'll now achieve with double the amount of time input, more capital, more bandwidth, etc. Mm. No. Talk to us a little bit now. So following that, you then locum for the next five years, you said. What talk, talk to us about the transition point when you decide, okay, now it's time to go fully into universe. I'm now literally going to stop being a clinical um doctor now yes yeah, it was a difficult one um i still identify as a doctor and a, and a clinician just because i i just enjoyed looking after patients so much and enjoyed the clinical work um it's very intellectually stimulating as so is running a business but um in a different way um but I, i'll take a step back actually because i think this is important for a lot of people when is it that i do i come off the training treadmill 
is a big first one. It's a, it's a big question for a lot of people. Um, I was really lucky because I was in that early ground. I, I seem to be in this like cohort from 2007 when I started medical school right through this cohort, like the first ones that were sort of experiencing. So we were the first people to do SJT, came away from the white paper. Um, we were like the first sort of cohort of people really ramping up this concept of F3, F4, F5. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you for starting that train. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah our, our pleasure. Um, but, but do you know what's really interesting there is that I was in this position at the end of F2. I still I loved, I loved surgery, but I was just like, I'm, I'm everyone I know is going to go and do an F3. They're all going to go to Australia. Yeah. Yes, I'll do a bit of clinical work, but really they're going to Australia to have a year off. Worst case scenario is I come out for a year and I grind away in a garage in St. Helens. Mm. And for a year, I learn an absolute load and it will add huge value to me. So why wouldn't I do that for my F3? So that mm. that was my jumping off point that gave me the confidence to, to come out of F3. I honestly, I, I don't, it may have been harder if it wasn't such a big thing, everyone going off to Australia and doing F3s. Um, mm. But that's the first piece is when do I decide to come out of clinical work? That was it for me. And I was very lucky to have the... I think the confidence behind me to go and do that. Mm. Coming out of clinical work entirely, I'll give you the, the honest answer was I was starting to grow the business internationally and doing more and more international travel. This is pre just pre-COVID. And I was starting to come off the, the plane and then I'd be not long after that going into a weekend on call or set of nights or something. Oh. And it dawned on me that... I was fine at this time because I was still pretty young um, that I could do this. But it dawned on me that what happens if I carry on doing that and there's a day where I'm really tired and I and I make a mistake that's not in the best interest of the patient. That is so unfair on that patient because I'm mm. I, by this point in time, I was doing the clinical work because I enjoyed it so much. It was basically my hobby. Um, mm. I, I, I don't mean to dumb down the, the clinical work. It was my mm. way of switching myself off from running the business. I would probably yeah. be doing it the weekends. And so I almost, it was a selfish pursuit for me because I, I got a lot of energy out of doing it. Um, it allowed me to switch off from the business, which is very difficult now um, yeah. to do. Um, but I just thought if I do make a mistake, that's so unfair. Um, so that's, that's what prompted me to, to, to stop, um, yeah. No, amazing. It's, to be fair, I'm I'm surprised that you kind of went on running the business while working actively as a clinician. Uh, most often, the stories we hear, it's like soon. To be fair, lots of medics aren't even going into F1. They literally jump in ship, going into different diverse careers. But you were actively working as a clinician for for many years before you kind of went in full time, um, which is something I didn't expect to hear. You mentioned the international sales and kind of before going on to that, a lot of the difficulty or one of the reasons why a lot of clinicians are put off innovating within the UK, within the NHS is this concept of red tape is very difficult to get hospitals to buy anything. You know, they're not too interested. The concept of nepotism, you know, all the stuff that comes with it. How has your experience been and what advice do you have for people that do want to build a product or innovate within the NHS? Yeah, it's not it's not easy. Um, <laughs> Hence the so question. I'll give a little bit more insight to our our product. So we're not a medical device. We're not we don't come under the um, the the medical device regulations either here in the UK or, or globally. Um, it's a simulation and training product. So that has positives and negatives. So the 
the positive part, it's not as heavily regulated. So, you know, we're talking about it's very difficult to fail quickly. We were able to fail a, bit, a little bit faster because there was a, la- a lack of regulation stopping us from failing quickly because with the, regu- with the regulatory pathways, it's very binary. It's like you do this, yeah. you do this, you do this, you do- eventually then you can fail, um, but it will take X amount of capital and years to do that. So that was a big positive for us. It also meant that that meant we could start commercial, like commercializing the product pretty much from day one once we felt it was appropriate, we had the right feedback, we had a bit of evidence behind it. Um, but we could do that in a much quicker cycle than, than medical device. So that was a positive. The negative and the, the difficulty for us is it's still technically, don't forget what, we, what I said at the beginning of the, 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 the conversation. We're, com- we're trying to completely change how we deliver surgical training. It, mm-hmm. When we started, and, and to an extent still today, it's still a nice to have. So think about the hospital procurement and the way that works. If I've got a cannula and I've invented a cannula that's 50% of the price of other cannulas and 20% quicker to put in and has a 15% less uh, from a lightest rate, I can put that on all of those facts onto a purchasing tower in the NHS yeah. and go, well, that's a no brainer for everyone, isn't it? And I can just sell huge volumes of that. And I, to, a, to an extent, you're almost dealing with one big customer. It's not mm. the case for, for our products. Every single deal, every single inst- install that we've had to do is a single process into each hospital because it's a, how can we fit our portfolio into the current needs you have so that we can at least solve your local problems. Okay. Um, and it's still a nice to have to today. So um, that, that, Again, what's the what's the um, I sound like a broken record here? But what's the solution to that that problem that we were solving, which is you can't just solve it with one one big procurement contract. Turning up, hard graft, uh, and believing in the product and enjoying it while you're doing that—that's really important. So that's that's how we that's how we've done it. We've we've built a business that supplies over seventy percent of NHS trusts. We're a preferred supplier in over seventy percent of NHS trusts because we took a contrarian route because we had to because there was no standard route. There's still not a procurement tower that takes into account surgical simulation in the NHS. Um, we have to go through all these different routes. So um, there's a few things we talk about. Um, what, one of them is is patient urgency, which I've been describing to you. So. Uh, urgently work on the day-to-day, but be patient about how long it takes for, for wins to come in and things to happen. If you adopt patient urgency, you'll be very good in med tech and healthcare. The other one is inventive execution. Think of other ways of doing things that no one else is thinking about it. Um, and, and that's what we took when it came to selling into the NHS and building our... I think a lot of people wouldn't have the, the patient urgency and the inventive execution to build the business in the way we have. Um, but if you do, then you can be successful. No, definitely. Amazing. The, the follow-up question was, how, I don't know if it's the term is how difficult is it? What's the difference between getting a product like yours into the NHS versus international markets? Hmm. Are they more receptive? We always hear kind of, you know, the, the Americans, let's say they're always throwing money around for this type of stuff, right? Do you have an experience with that? And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. So, so a huge majority of our revenue comes from from the NHS. It's been a real focus focus for us for, for years, and the home market, and making sure that we're making it stick. It comes back to focus. If we try to uh, if we try to address the whole world all at the same time, we would have tipped over because it's a it's a pretty big place. Um, focus is key. Having said that, we've actually sold products in seventy six countries worldwide, but they are what I would describe as accidental sales, where someone from 
India has said, can we buy this? And then someone from Spain has said, can we buy this? And we're not going to say, no, yes, you can buy that. But our two areas of focus are the UK and the US. Um, here's the advice which, which we've learned so far. In the UK, you can, you can create a product where you can go and say with this product, um, th this is going to Im improve the outcomes for patients or uh, improve efficiencies or whatever. Interestingly, in the US, now, of course, all the physicians care about patient outcome, otherwise you wouldn't be doing that. But predominantly still in the US, we have something, you have something called a fee-for-service model. So the, the hospital systems are remunerating, remunerated for delivering services. So they actually want to be seeing patients. Um, so it's a very, very different proposition in terms of how you pitch your product. That the, the sale here in the UK is not the same as the sale in the US. And, and in the US, it's not always just about here is, the, here is a shiny product that can make you operate quicker at a higher scale. So sometimes it is because if it's fee for service and I can do 50% more service to provision, then great, I'm going to buy that off you because now I can earn more money as long as you're the cost, as long as I can offset the cost of your solution against that and it fiscally makes sense and moves the needle in the right direction, that's fine. Sometimes in the US it's, well, we want to be seen as having the, the most cutting edge product in, in the world. And so we're actually not bothered about anything other than the, the PR that goes along with that. Um, that this is not a general, that's not generalist, by the way, that's just some places. Um, so yeah, it tackling the NHS versus tackling the U S the principles and the basics are still the same. Keep turning up. You have to be incredibly persistent. You have to enjoy what you're doing. You have to believe in what you're doing. So patient urgency and inventive execution, there is, they're, they're almost exactly the same process in terms of how you, if you sell like we sell, so you're not going onto a GPO or whatever it is in the U S, um, then take that approach and touch wood, you'll be all right. Cause we're in the process of doing that as we speak and scaling it up. Um, but the narrative and the story has to change. You have to understand what system am I speaking to? Um, what story and narrative do they need to hear to make sure that they get this? And, and the, that may sound a little bit, um, militant. It's like, oh, I'm changing my story just to get someone to buy something. Well, the way I always say to people is if your product is truly going to improve patient outcomes, but you, instead of leading with that, you're leading with, it can increase the revenues for a hospital system or something along those lines. Um, then great. If that results in them adopting it, you know, it's going to lead to improved patient care. So that's, so that's good. Um, uh, so yeah, it is, it is a different cell, but the principles are still the same. No, definitely. So we, 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 we touched on this earlier. So Innovest is growing. You're kind of working on full time at some point in the journey, you realize you need an injection of capital kind of to scale it, to grow. That in itself is described as raising one is like a full time job. How did you find that? And any advice once again, for people that are looking to kind of raise money from VCs, angels or whatever it may be. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a full time job. Um, the first things first is make sure that you've got a viable business that um, can either keep growing or at least is, um, staying, staying stable while you're doing that. Uh, number two, take some rest before you start the process. Uh, and that's a genuine piece of advice. It is when you run a proper process, raising capital is exhausting because you are now doing what well, you're already doing as a, as a founder of a scale up or a startup, you're already doing like four or five full-time jobs. So you're adding another one of those onto the mix. So either something's got to give or you just have to go and, and hit the turbos and work even harder. So um, 
when we're scaling up or, or gearing up for a raise, we'll get the plan finessed. We'll agree what the plan is, what the quantum is, who our targets for our raise are, and then I'll take a bit of rest. I'll take a week of just downtime and say, okay, now now we're going to go um, because it can take a long time and it can take a lot longer than, you'd, than sometimes you'd hope or wish. Um, so number one, get rest. Number two, you need to have a really focused plan um, if you're raising capital. Um, I think if you're going to just go out there and have a couple of conversations, say, we're thinking of raising capital, we think we're going to raise between 250 and 500,000 pounds, and we, this is probably how we'll spend it. You're not going to get anywhere. Um, you have to be focused. You have to be clear. Um, and so that's the, the pre. Um, in terms of how we've done it and we found it, we've raised $10 million in aggregate since 2018. Um, only 600,000 pounds of that is dilutive capital. So we've taken a very different route to a lot of people. Now, one of the reasons we've been able to do that is because we run a profitable business that sells products with intrinsic value that people want to part their, with their ways with their money to have because it adds value to them. So that helps. Um, but of that 10 million, the two major rounds that I'm sure people are interested in are we did a 600,000 pound round um, with VCs in 2018. And then we did a $7 million round uh, earlier this year. Um, but that $7 million round was effectively non-dilutive. We raised something called venture debt, um, which is minimally dilutive funding. Um, so we've taken a very contrarian approach in the middle of that. We've taken grants, we've taken debt, we've taken um, higher purchase financing of equipment. Um, we've, we've basically tapped into every single possible piece of funding that you can think of. And the funding landscape is very good here in the UK. We're very lucky if you're a UK-based business and the US um, that there's so much opportunity there. So how have we done it? We've done it in a contrarian way. Why were we able to do that? Because we have a product that has intrinsic value and we worked out how to sell it. So that allows us to attract debt because we can service the debt, for example. Um, I've spoken about the pre, so get some rest, go in with a plan, and then the during, again, it needs to be focused. You need to run a process. Every, everything, when we, Innovus, when we speak, we speak about process all the time. So you do when you're hiring, run your process. When you're developing a new product, run your process. When we're preparing for product launch, run the process. Same with raising capital. Think about who, who are my VCs that are going to be a good fit or high net worths or angels or whatever it may well be. Who's going to be a good fit? Then go and do your research. Think about who the right people are that are in those organizations that will be receptive to reaching out. Um, think about what they like to do. Think about how they like to invest and, and, and make sure that you are going and speaking to someone that you're a good fit for. There's no point in when you're raising capital, going and speaking. And let's say you're raising some seed financing of 500,000 pounds and you go and approach a mid to late stage PE firm that likes to cut 10 million pound checks. Um, they won't respond to you for one, but but even if they did, um, you've lost your credibility with them. And and if you're going to run a good successful business, you don't want to lose credibility with them because it's highly likely that if you do the right things, you'll need to speak to them in four or five years time for late stage financing. Uh, so yeah, a lot of homework. And then when you're in it and in the process, again, it's just turning up. Like you, you have got to keep picking the phone up. Um, it's like doing a sales cycle with a product. You've just got to keep going at it, um, keep picking the phone up, keep sending the emails, keep keep in touch because momentum kills deals um, or lack mm, of momentum okay. kills deals. So um, that's that's a big part oh, of, of amazing. 
another question just to follow up on that now. So apart from the money aspect of being venture backed or with angel investors on board, what are the other benefits of having having all these different individuals, their experiences on board and on your side of the table? Yeah, it's huge. Um, I got asked this question actually recently in an interview over in the in the US, um, which was I was sat on a panel of chief execs of varying sized businesses, um, one of which incredibly, incredibly experienced um, in, in big strategics and, and now with a very well funded um, medtech business. And the question from the moderator was, next time all of you guys go and build your business, your next businesses, once these ones have been exited, um, would you bring in an outsider onto your board earlier? So the traditional thing here is um, when you're raising capital, the VCs will want to see that you've got a board of, of med tech or pharma or biotech talent or knowledge at the board level. Now, my response to that was, well, we did it straight away. Um, so we, we bought we bought in a non-exec chairman when we raised capital in 2018 out of sector. He's one of our mentors. We ran a process, by the way. So we ran a process for this person. It turned out that one of our mentors won the process because uh, he's very, very good and we're very lucky to have him. Um, he's not med tech. He's from all sorts of industries, offshore wind farms, bollards, security. Um, but what he what he does know is he knows how to scale big businesses internationally and he's experienced everything we're going to experience as we scale and more. So to answer your question, yeah, the, the value of it is huge. And I think, especially when we've come from something where, as, as traditionally, if the medics are listening to this, we're, we're, we're very used to single player game. Like it's all down to us. Revision is down to us. Learning the, the content is down to us. Yes, you may do a bit of group revision, but you've got, to, you've got to perform on the day in the exams. You've got to perform when you're looking after patients. That's down to you. Um, so when you then start building businesses, you've got this idea of, well, this is my business. I've got all the ability to do everything. And um, I, I may not necessarily want or need someone to come in. And I can't see the value because, by the way, these people, if they're good, cost money. So when uh, and we'll touch on that when it comes to thinking about your process for capital raising, actually remind me. But you may think, well, do I, I, don't, I may not see the value in, in this person. I have to pay, pay them all this money. But I promise you there is huge value. Our first two that we made were non-exec chairman, who, who, by the way, should be, well, and is the non-exec chairman of much bigger businesses than Innovus, which means it's amazing because we grow with him, uh, and a finance director. Game-changing for us, absolutely huge. Yes, they cost us money, but the value add that they provided to the business, the expertise they bought, the years of experience, the operational uh, firepower they bought was absolutely massive. So, um, yeah, you have to still run a process, though. Don't just let anyone get chucked onto the board. Um, it, 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 I can't, I can't speak about it heavily enough. Um, that that process is is key to that. No, definitely. One of the questions we had, and we recently had a professor of surgery on the podcast was surgery seems or he thinks surgery is moving away from kind of learning in a box per se to kind of vr headsets xr ai all of that stuff are you working towards that do you think it's tight it's a while before we kind of get to that way we're kind of you know using like playstation controllers to kind of practice surgery or are we kind of using these simulators you're building for a while yeah, we're. Um, I like this. I like this topic. So, so we're, we we think about what we're doing as a multi-decade, if not infinite, mission. So, so our mission is to become the world's partner for surgical training. So, 
what that means is we as a business need to make sure that the technologies we're putting in the hands of surgeons allow them to train for the majority approach to surgery today, but thinking thinking 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years in the future as to what those technologies will be in the future. So today, how do we operate? We do not stand in theater with headsets on. We are not waving handsets around in the air without any haptics and operating in an avatar world. 95% of our procedures, we're standing next to a patient holding instruments, looking at the screen. So our job as a business to achieve our mission is to make sure that we're delivering technologies that allow the surgeons that are doing 95% of the work to be better at, at that work and achieve a learning curve quicker. So how does that look? That doesn't, that doesn't mean AR or XR is precluded. No, no, we, we think that it's very important. So we have what we call novel headset-free AR. So the, the training in the box thing, I, I think is, um, I, I totally agree with what that prof is saying, which is this isolated idea. I'm putting words in his mouth, but this is my take on this. This is idea of isolated training where I'm standing in almost a box in theater with another surgeon and it's just that. Um, I totally agree that that's, that's antiquated. But what we don't believe is that just waving things around in the air with a headset on is the right way to do it in a virtual world. So headset, what, it, what is headset-free novel AR? That's where you combine all the positives of a basic box trainer. So that's soft tissues that feel like actual tissues. It's the use of real instruments that you would use in real life, but then all the positives of VR. So digital environments around those soft tissues to make it immersive and create complications. It's technology such as computer vision to track the instruments in three dimensions, provide rich objective data. It's the ability to record via live video stream your, your procedures so that instead of only getting the feedback standing next to the patient, you can do it procedures from home, send them to your, your mentor, your professor, get some feedback. So that, I think that piece of operating in a box, that analogy, I totally agree with that's, that's antiquated. We, we must move away from it. Um, but the other way of me answering this question, which is we totally believe in, in XR, AR, et cetera, but it, it, what you need is you need to take a problem first approach to technology development, not a technology first approach to problem solving. So I'll, I'll repeat that again. We take a problem first approach to technology development. What's our problem? 95% of all the procedures, minimally invasive procedures globally are done straight stick standing next to a, standing next to the patient. We need to get better at that and improve how we do that before we worry about either just robotics or, or training that in a different way. So that is problem first. What's the technology? Headset free, novel AR gives you natural haptics. It's low cost infinitely scalable, it's considered more realistic and immersive, and it allows us to shift the, the, the narrative. Um, that as opposed to technology first, i.e. we're trying to find somewhere to put this technology, which in our opinion is for, for surgical training, hands-on skills training, that's where a lot of this headset VR is, is trying to find a home. That doesn't necessarily mean that VR is not useful for procedural learning and learning steps of something, but when it comes to the physical pursuit of surgery, um, we, we, we personally don't feel it's there yet. When that's how we're going to do surgery, absolutely, it'll be the right modality, yeah. the right yep. one, not for us. No, amazing. On, on that point, actually, just speaking more generically about entrepreneurs and technology that's out there, do you feel it's an easy trap to get into? Because I've been recently reading on LinkedIn and stuff about healthcare in the metaverse and people are building 
for something that appears to be actually a long way away from adoption in the here and now. Um, do you think that's a danger of people going for a technology first approach and it's a trap really? I have to, my, my disclaimer here is I'm not anti-technology. I love technology. Um, we're, we're, we're tech first business. We're, we're massive digital platform. Um, so I think that we, we must have those, we must have those people striving. And let's take robotic surgery for minimum invasive surgery as a good example. 5% of global minimum invasive procedures done robotically. There's over 200 robotic platforms currently under development in the world at the moment. Um, that's a huge number of platforms. There's, there's currently three that are in use in patients. Um, those, those 200 people pushing the boundaries and developing, they're thinking multi-decade. That's, that's multi-decade stuff. We have to think like that to push the boundaries. So for, absolutely for sure. I think that you need to have people with big visions that need to be able to deploy patient urgency and inventive execution that need to think for the long term. But we mustn't be distracted about the here and now. So when we think about robotic surgery, lots of people say to us, oh, well, isn't that a challenge to your business? No, we are here to become the world's partner for surgical training. We'll create solutions to support robotic surgery as and when the traction is is there and there's enough there's enough robotic surgery being done we'll support that along the way so i think that we need people having those big visions um but we also need some of those big visions to make sure that they they have a, a an appreciable meaningful and actually sustainable impact on the way we're delivering healthcare. um but because think think about the the billions of patients that in today's environment don't have access to safe surgery um I forget, I forget the figures for 4 billion of our population don't have access to safe surgery, let alone standard surgery, let alone robotics. And so I think, yeah, we, we have to have those, those change makers and those, those innovators thinking about it. Um, how do, I think your question as well was, how do you get into it? What, what are the barriers? That's not something you can fail quickly at because you have, you have to take the time over that. And therefore, how do you do that? You must have capital. Um, huge amount of capital has flown into robotic surgery. Um, that, that's why we have 200 robotics companies um, uh, currently creating robots um, for surgery. Um, huge amount of capital has flown in there, which is great because that's giving those guys the chance and the opportunity to push the boundaries for, for many years down the line. Um, but we also have to remember that right now there are patients that are unwell that need looking after. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I like your approach and I, and I wonder if your clinical background lends itself to it when you're there seeing it rather than being a non-clinician building out these companies and kind of living in the future not realizing there are patients requiring surgery now delays um, and like you said 95 percent of surgery are still in the modality is now and you know all this vr stuff yeah no it was a, it was an interesting conversation with the professor so i thought you know we'll bring it to the table here but you know i, I agree with the, with the angle you're coming from we are conscious of time. It's been more than an hour. We've got like a million and one questions to throw at you. Um, while we wrap up, I wanted to ask what kind of, what you're hoping to see in the future? Like, what are you working towards? What are you building? Are you sticking in the same space? Um, what can we expect from you? Yeah, thanks. A really easy one for us to answer because we've dialed in our, our focus. Um, Again, if someone goes away with a takeaway from this, focus is really key. So yeah. our focus and every, our answer to everything is we can just present to you what our mission statement is. And our, our mission is to become the world's partner for surgical training. 
Um, okay. That doesn't have a timeline appended to it. It doesn't have a revenue figure appended to it or profitability appended to it. The world's partner for surgical training. What does that actually look like practically? Yeah. We will know that we've achieved our mission when someone on the planet is having any form of surgical procedure and they can turn to their, their surgeon that's operating and say, how did you learn how to do this? And they can turn around and say, oh, well, obviously I used the Innovus platform X. I did this many in the simulated environment and I reached this standard before I was allowed to touch you. That, that ultimately that is, is achieving our mission. Um, mm. Like I say, that is a multi, <laughs> that is a multi-decade okay. mission for us to achieve. Um, okay. We're one decade in. Um, yeah. So, uh, and there's a long way to go. So, so how yeah. does that look? That's, that's coming down to different verticals. We're currently in the verticals of minimally invasive um, laparoscopic surgery, minimally invasive hysteroscopy. Um, th- I'll, I'll let that's you crazy. guys fill in the gaps and listeners no, fill in the I, gaps. Of course, like amazing. What are the- it's like a... Like, you know, how, how many fly hours have you clocked in the sim? And it's like, if you're a surgeon, exactly. how many fly hours, you know, surgical hours have you done in the end of a sim? No, I can imagine it. Like, um, it's taken off. And it, and it makes sense, as in, it's the way we train. It's the way surgeries are done now. So why not have the opportunity to be able to practice with these affordable pieces? I remember when they brought it into medical school, it, it not only did it help, but it ignited a passion to see what surgery was like. It's mm. nice watching it as a student, but to kind of play around with it and see, okay, this is what it feels like. This kind of ignites that fire. Mm. But um, no, I think what you're doing is incredible work. Um, and we wish you even more success. And, you know, you are going to become the Steve Jobs of surgery. I'm telling you, Elliot. Thank you. No, I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, hopefully I've managed to add some value to the to the listeners. And, um, and thanks very much for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. No, no worries. Thank you.